0: Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hello everyone, David here. Welcome back to the DGR Podcast. I hope you're all doing very, very well. I have a great guest for you today for episode number 37. I have Yuri Pagel. Yuri is the head strength coach at Ajax Football Club. Ajax have obviously been one of the top clubs in... European football for a long, long time now. They seem to do a lot of things right. And so does Yuri from following him on Instagram for a while now. So I wanted to get him on to have a chat about just kind of strength training in general. His transition from working with more basketballers to now working with more footballers. The different length seasons and how you manage athletes in that period. His thoughts on some of Franz Bosch's work, because it's obviously quite popular in that part of the world. How you manage maybe an athlete that's having an issue. Is it because yeah do you need to deload them do you need to load them more short-term thinking versus long-term thinking is it global fatigue versus local fatigue or maybe the local tissue isn't strong enough loads of things like that so i think it's a really good episode i think it's a really good chat i really enjoyed it and um i think you're really going to enjoy it so without further ado here is yuri do you want to give us a little intro yeah sure
1: short version long version give me a (laughs) <laughs> yeah. uh, whatever you think is relevant, Me- medium version. Yeah. So my uh, my name is Jerry. Twenty nine years old. I uh, work as the head of strength at AFC Ajax here in Amsterdam. I'm heading into my fourth season working at the company. Before this, actually, my background is in uh, business, business and economics from the University of Amsterdam. During my my undergrad, I actually realized that it maybe wasn't the career path that I would like to pursue. It wasn't necessarily aligned with my, my passions in life and the things I I really enjoyed doing. Took a little, a little redirector redirectory path for my career into at that time, personal training and starting my, my journey basically within strength and conditioning that was in basketball, which is also the sport that I played when I was younger, went back into basketball as a strength and conditioning coach here in Amsterdam. Got my experience primarily in first instance, working in the gym-based sports like weightlifting, crossfit, et cetera, powerlifting, as well as basketball. Various clubs, worked with the national team here for basketball and the national three-on-three team. We actually qualified for the uh, Olympics last year. That was also the last year that I worked part-time at IX. So now this past season, I was full-time. Did all of that, worked with fighters, field hockey players, variety of different sports. And this past year was my first year where I'm truly, quote unquote, specializing into one sport where before this, I had a pretty broad background of working in a lot of different sports, working private industry team, trying to combine everything. And this is now like my first or this will be my second year why I'm full time as the head of strength at IX, with that being my, my main goal for now. So that's kind of the, the short gist of it. You feel like you, um, you feel like you're happier now that you have one singular focus? I've actually, I've, I've had that question pretty frequently and I think it's a relevant one to the point well, where I thought that was a
0: completely new question. That was just, no one else had thought of asking.
1: <laughs> no, like I think from a, from a progression standpoint, from a evol- like evolution as a coach, I think it's super valuable to first have like a very broad development being exposed to various cultures. You know, every sport has its own little inherent culture that's unique to them. Also being exposed to potentially different training approaches, training design, different methodologies that might be more popular in one sport versus another, and then from there, understanding what the most important commonalities are with regards to human movements and preparing someone for elite sport or high high performance sport, and also what the differences are. So I think if you have a A broad background in working in various sports, you start to appreciate these commonalities as well as the differences, which can then really shape how you approach working in a new sport. Because most coaches won't spend the rest of their life working with only one sport. So if I start my career very narrow, with a very narrow vision, only working within one culture, only working within one approach, the likelihood that that approach is going to work in a variety of different contexts or settings is very low. -hmm. So, for me, I feel like that part of my career was truly integral to being able to be successful, hopefully, in the future, to be exposed to all of these different experiences, cultures, and approaches, to the point where I can now specialize a little bit more towards working specifically in team sport, in elite performance, you know, working at the Champions League level, and then specifically towards the game of football. Mm -hmm. Because By understanding all these commonalities, we can then say, okay, regardless of sport, when an athlete starts their career, we should probably work or focus on these types of movements because that will be the foundation because it has been evident to be be of the utmost importance for every sport, regardless, right? Combat sports, field-based, court-based, et cetera. For instance, you know that they all have to maneuver a different object or maneuver their own body around an object, that is something that's a commonality amongst all sports. Now, high sprint exposure might be a difference where one sport like football, they're exposed continuously to high velocity sprinting. A combat sport athlete, if they're exposed to high velocity sprinting, we have a very large problem. Yeah. So it <laughs> means they're running away from something. That's never good. <laughs> yeah. So understanding these commonalities, understanding all these differences, then allow you to, what I stole from Kier when I'm flat, is to reverse engineer that process to say like, okay, where do we start? Mm-hmm. Where do we end up? And then from there, try where, where do you, we end up being the demands of the sport that we're trying to prepare for? Mm-hmm. And then from that point, we can reverse engineer, say like, okay, this is where we need to be. This is where we are right now. We're now going to design a path that hopefully leads us from A to B as efficiently and effectively as possible. So to come back to your question with a little bit of a detour, <laughs> I'm very happy to specialize now but I because I feel like I needed that focus into one particular task. That's kind of hard if you have all these different things going on. Yeah. But I do feel like for those first years of my career that it was very important for my development so that hopefully I'm able to develop more of a robust approach to developing for elite sport, yeah. which I might have otherwise missed out on. Yeah, I think
0: so. I think early on,
1: just getting a exposure to as
0: many different types of people, different levels, whether you're working with athletes or not, but just different everyone. Um, that definitely helped me over the last few years working online to having access to loads of different athletes and different people online and like different sports. And actually, the sports that I was most familiar with was football. So, Americans might call it soccer. We actually call it soccer here as well because we have Gaelic football. So, Gaelic football, hurling, and soccer were the three sports I was most familiar with. And turns out, I think they're probably the three hardest sports to work with because they're just almost, there's no off-season. They're just almost yeah. around yeah. Uh, yeah. and then getting to work with the American sports and all that. So. Holy shit, like I have so much time. Yeah, it, it is intense when they're in season, but I was like, I have so much time to clean up stuff now in the off-season, which I just
1: was not used to. So yeah, that was, that was nice to get exposure to loads of different yep. things. Yeah. For me, for me, that was the other way around. Going from basketball, where you have the three-month off season, to <laughs> working in football, where it's like, oh, where you don't have as much time here. Yeah, yeah,
0: it was a shock. Yep, especially the volume that your guys are are experiencing throughout the season. Like I worked with, I worked with our local. So I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it soccer or football for the purpose of this episode. I'm going to say soccer, right? Because there is American listeners. So I worked with our local soccer team here who. They, were prof- they are professional, but the Irish league isn't great. And this was probably four years when they qualified that year for the Europa League. But like they were playing a lot of weeks. They were playing two 90-minute games uh, a week. And them athletes obviously weren't as good as the athletes you're working with. And the intensity isn't as high. But I was still like, these guys' bodies are getting beaten up. And you can just see it happening over the season. And it was
1: like three weeks, four weeks off season, then I'm back into it. It was just like a massive eye opener for me. Right. And then that experience that you're gained at that point is going to help you further down the line. Let's say you were to work with a, what's called a soccer player now in the future, and you're working with them in season, or you're working with them year round to then understand, okay, how can I periodize in such a way that I'm mitigating or I'm minimizing that accumulation of fatigue throughout the year, yet I'm still appreciating the need to develop some of these physical capacities or movement traits that might be insufficient for the level at which you're trying to compete at. Mm-hmm. So there's so much value in that, which is again, why I appreciate a broad background and experience, a wide array of experiences to then be able to specialize a little bit more rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. And I think also at the beginning of our career, we're probably a little bit more pliable we tend to bounce from wall to wall, right? We don't really have a a true north yet. We're just swinging all over the place. You don't really know what your core principles are. And then those can develop, and those those can be adjusted on the fly based on all of your experiences. While if you're further down the road and you haven't experienced anything else but one culture, but one approach, et cetera, it'll be hard to kind of open up your vision because it's more likely that you've already predetermined or you've already developed some of these principles and your approach within that one narrow setting, making that approach and those principles probably less robust to being successful in the field in the future. Yeah. How do you think about
0: the that? Here, here, here's, here's an issue I have. Not an issue, but how do you think about, so with that much volume involved, right, and that much intensity and that much load on someone's body, it's easy to offload them then. At the time, because it's like okay, they're getting a little bit fatigued here and they need to offload them, and if I load them in this during this period I load them a little bit more, the risk for injury maybe goes up a little bit, right because there's just more stress, but how do I offset that with okay, towards the end of the season, there's more fati- like if I keep offloading them for the next six months, just a little bit, now maybe the end of the season, their risk for injury has gone up a little bit, so it's almost like short-term versus long-term thinking any words of wisdom there
1: that's super difficult obviously very dependent on the case um the individual itself that you're working with i believe in most team sports kind of maneuvering your way through the long-term and short-term perspectives and saying okay what's the priority for now is very important as a staff or in general if you're working with an athlete you need to be very cautious especially in those scenarios, what you're doing off the field or off the court or off the, uh, off the playing dimension, basically outside of sport itself, how much you're loading an athlete. So oftentimes an athlete can be overloaded because that tissue can be weak and underdeveloped, mm-hmm. or it can just be overworked in general. It can be general fatigue that's been developed over time. That distinguishment is massive because someone that is just generally overworked that has outworked their entire capacities probably needs that deloading phase in order for them to be able to, to go back up or to be able to build back up again. Now, if it is someone that has specific underloaded tissues, which is why they're experiencing pain, discomfort, fatigue problems, etc., cetera, those you probably want to try to load as much as possible within the range where you feel or where you deem it to be safe. Now that, of course, you try to based on as much information as possible, you try to quantify it, not just do it all solely by a, your feel, basically. But that distinguishment between a state of global fatigue versus local, and then whether it is actually strong tissue, or whether it's tissue that might be compensated, et cetera, is a big distinguishment. But one that just, in general, requires so much analysis of the individual case that it's very hard to say, like, okay, you should attack it this way, or you should attack it that way. I do feel like that perspective of saying global versus local is pretty important. And then also, I believe that a lot of practitioners, myself as well in the past, have taken the deloading too far. where are like, I don't know if I can load them. And then yeah. what happens over time is you don't load them in less and less and less. And before you know it, they truly get hurt because now this structure, this the, the structure system, tissue, et cetera, is not capable of handling any more load, yeah. which is why they eventually get hurt. So that can be one of the things that I've personally made mistakes and also the other way around, thinking like, okay, well, again, my background is a strength coach. Something is too weak, right? What do we do? Mm-hmm. We just keep loading and loading and loading it mm-hmm. until eventually it is too much load for them to handle. And again, they break. So playing that game, trying to understand, okay, balancing between Long-term and short-term becomes integral in these kinds of situations where you're working in season with athletes that are playing a lot, because oftentimes you can't take them off the field, off the court, etc. cetera. That is just too important at a certain level. So then you got to find ways of, around it to kind of work with the issue that you might have at hand, making sure that they're staying on the field short-term as well as long-term.
0: Yeah. It's a tricky one. I've made that. I've made both, both of those mistakes in the past. Uh, I actually had that kind, kind of had that conversation with Keir. He had kind of asked me, uh, uh, we went around and he was like taking a piss out of Gota and um, a couple of these other systems. And he said like, oh, obviously some athletes feel good when they go and do it. But I think a big part of that is that they just stopped back squatting all the time. And it just took away that stimulus, which might have been like a noxious stimulus for them at the time. And then that's a that's a good thing. Then you just feel better. But maybe years, a year later, they still haven't been loading. They're still avoiding that. And that's when maybe a bigger injury comes because they weren't able to handle that force. So right. that's, a, that's a tricky one.
1: Right. And that's also, you know, let's say you're working private industry. You're working with athletes uh, during the offseason. You're preparing them for a preseason. A lot of times. You know, first of all, we have to understand that during the off-season phase, there is no sport practice, so far less stress that's being placed on the body, on the athletes. So they probably have more adaptive energy and time available for the training process, which yeah. is why they make far more gains in development. The, the development goes faster. Makes sense. I think that we need to appreciate that, need to understand that. But then secondly, it should be your role to prepare the athlete for the demands of preseason. Because that time is probably when, when they're going to get hurt, or the the risk of getting hurt is higher. Not necessarily during the off season. If you get your athletes hurt during the off season, probably is something is off. But during the preseason, that's when risk really goes up. So as a trainer during the off season, you want to prepare them for those demands, which is far easier said than done. But oftentimes, and I'm sure you've seen this too. Is that trainers will then kind of perpetually underload during the off-season phase, not preparing them or saying, like, okay, where do we need to have them when preseason starts? Then preseason starts, what happens? Athletes get hurt. Trainer says, Team, what have you been doing? They're getting hurt, your fault, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. For us, or regardless of whether you're working in a team industry or in, in a private setting, to look in the mirror and say, okay, what am I preparing for? And how am I going to get there? Again, reverse engineering that process becomes so important because otherwise, yes, maybe short-term, it feels good. They're doing amazing, et cetera. But if we're not preparing them for those demands, we're basically putting our athletes in a position where they're going to be far more likely to fail than to succeed. And that's something you want to avoid because you want to you know, put out best practice abilities, of course. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's, very, it's a very, very tricky one. I'm actually rehabbing an ACL and rehabbing Dini at the moment. ACL I put up a few of his videos, and we had we had a conversation this morning. With, that's I actually have a big red head on me because it's the uh, it's the hottest day we've probably had in Ireland in about two years, and we were out in the pitch for about two hours doing like just some contact work. And he's getting back into that. And then he was saying, All right, like what?" So I'm going to be he's going to be back in full contact, full training probably in the next three weeks. I would say. And he said, what is my gym work going to look like then? And I'm like, I don't know yet. I'm not sure. Because he, really, he's, like, he's enjoyed the training that we've done. We've challenged him a lot. But I'm like, how much, if you keep chasing more strength, more strength throughout the season, he's 35. He's coming back from an ACL. He's going to go back into relatively high-level sport. <sighs> I just want him to make sure he doesn't lose his strength throughout, throughout the season. I'm not sure how much more... <sighs> Yeah. I don't know. I need you to answer that question for me. How do I, how do I, how do I like three, six months later, how is he still as strong as he is now while training three or four days a week and playing a game as well? Tricky one.
1: Yeah. No, of course that's, that's a question. If you're working in any in-season environment is how do I, how do I understand the demands of my sport? How do I understand what is integral for me to develop or maintain next to the demands of the sport? Because sport practice doesn't fulfill all of these demands generally that are going to be asked during a game or certain qualities that are needed for success in the game, right? That's the whole reason why a strength and conditioning coach even exists in the first place is because there are certain stimuli that can't be provided through sport practice alone and need to be periodized in a very intelligent manner for the athletes to develop to the point where they're capable of higher performance outputs within sport yeah. but with that being said it is secondary to sport practice because the most important thing in order for you to perform or to have high performance outputs is sport practice yeah to actually practice a skill tactical development technical development the mental abilities and also these specific physical traits that our athletes are most commonly exposed to because let's say we're never training and once a week we're playing a basketball game the odds of them getting hurt during that one game increase the odds of them performing decrease by a ton. While yeah. if you take the squat out, they'll probably survive. Yeah. And they'll probably survive for very long times because this has been done for decades and there's still athletes that do it to this day and they get yeah. away with it. Yeah. doesn't mean it's not important. doesn't mean we're not addressing it. Of course we're addressing it, but it is secondary to sport practice. Yeah. So again, during the off season, Yes, we have the time, we have the adaptive energy to spend more time towards all these things. So maybe we do get to situations where we're lifting four times a week, relatively high intensities, high volumes during the season. Maybe that is not doable. So if you're working in a sport that has a relatively longer off season, what does that mean for the in-season? Probably means you're playing more games because you have more of a condensed in-season schedule. That means that during the season, you're probably in most scenarios thinking about maintaining physical qualities or minimizing detraining physical qualities so you don't have to start the next offseason back where you began the year before. No, you're trying to maintain what you did the last year or the last preseason or last offseason, maintain during the season, and then try to build on it again during the offseason. Of course, there are certain things that we can still stimulate to the point of improvement. Mm -hmm. even throughout the season, only if it does not greatly increase the risk of injury or lower performance during the season. Only then is it worth our while. Now for sports where the off season is a little bit shorter, which of course are also there such as soccer, then maybe you're trying to stimulate a little bit more if you feel that those physical qualities are hindering the athlete's ability to perform sport at the level at which they're vying to play at certain athletes are just athletes that are amazing at all physical qualities, then you're not really thinking about stimulating them because it's probably not going to improve the bottom line of improved sport performance. Mm -hmm. Other athletes, as we know, are either too slow, not strong enough, or maybe have movement discrepancies, large asymmetries that put them at risk of injury, et cetera, et cetera, which we want to address regardless of whether we're in-season or off-season, especially if we have a short off-season. Mm -hmm. So yes, maybe you think about a little bit more about stimulating, but in general, for most cases, it will be, especially if you're talking about elite athletes that have been developed for years and years is about maintaining. So you have the option, you have the opportunity during the off season to then build on that every little year or every year, just a little bit, trying to sprinkle it in, getting them better over time, over time, over time, understanding that it's a marathon and not a race. We're not trying to gain 40 kilos on a back squat for a 25 year old when they've already been playing pro sport for six years. It's probably not worth the risk. But if we do it every year, just a couple kilos extra, maybe five, whatever, keep building on that. We're probably mitigating risk of that intervention while also spreading it out, making sure that we can keep progressing the athlete throughout the rest of their career.
0: Yeah, that's a big problem in the GA, you know. Uh, gating football and and young athletes like 18 19 year olds even younger now they're far younger actually they're in the gym and, and it's basically the, the ssc coach has them under that age so they're under 17 with that team for one year and it's like it's not let's say an academy where they're going to be there for five or ten years it's they're going to be under that age under that coach and that ssc coach for one year and the ssc coach needs to show I, their back squat is this much better. They're sprinting is, they're faster, they can jump higher and they absolutely beat the shit out of athletes and they, they they get what they wanted from it. And then a year, two years down the line, the athletes are done, done. They can't, they just They just milked everything they put out of them. So, big issue.
1: Right, and that's, I'm not going to say it's a one-on-one kind of thing, but it's similar to what I said about trainers working with athletes in the off season. And then going back to the team, et cetera, it's okay. What are you preparing your athletes for? Like, yes, that strength and conditioning coach is probably going to warrant his pay by increasing the squat because that's probably what he's going to be judged on doesn't mean it is best for the athlete. Maybe underloading makes the trainer during the off season look best and make the athlete feel good. So they keep their job, but it doesn't prepare the athlete for what's most important for them. So In those scenarios, I would say the same thing that's probably the most important is a communication between various teams or with the private industry coach and the team instructors, et cetera, is to make sure that everything is in line for the continuous long-term development of an athlete rather than the short-term, more me as a staff member oriented perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I don't know, I don't think it's that much
0: of a problem in in football and Gaelic football and hurling but in the states it's like everyone has their own private trainer uh because the offseason is so hard and i think that must be a mess it must be a mess over there yeah is the
1: bosch stuff getting popular over there
0: or has it always been popular
1: yeah it's it's always been popular of course i mean he's uh he's dutch obviously so there's a lot of people here that have followed the courses, read the books, et cetera, and, and that are actually integrating a lot of it. A lot of people that I believe do the actual courses also work in Holland. So it, it is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty popular here. Yeah. What do you think? Tough question. I believe from the perspective of motor control and motor learning that the work of Bosch has placed more of an emphasis on it compared to more traditional overload means. So of course, him promoting coordinative overload rather than traditional overload, I believe that is important for the industry as a whole, especially for certain countries and cultures where there's such a massive emphasis on the traditional overload, on only general training means and never specific training means. However, I believe that a lot of things that are being said or being shared are not unique to... The Bosch Methods, they have actually been researched for decades and decades. Mm -hmm. He has popularized a lot of those, which again, I feel is of value, but because I truly feel that sport coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, physiotherapists need to understand movement, need to understand coordination, need to understand motor learning and control in order for them to understand how one exercise might benefit something else or how it might not. Yes. Similar to why they must understand the laws of dynamic of the, the dynamics of correspondence laws from Verkashansky mm-hmm. to understand how a training intervention might influence a sports skill. Now, of course, a lot of strength conditioning coaches don't really have much to do with the actual eventual sports skill, which mm-hmm. also is a problem, should be something that should be in line. Mm-hmm. So, I believe that perspective on it is very important. I believe that sometimes it is seen that he might be or that's how I've interpreted that he is the founder of motor control and learning and that his approach is the only approach which if you dive into literature it's much more extensive than that and I do believe and I don't consider this necessarily something against the Bosch methodology I do feel like it is oftentimes misused misinterpreted that it leads to a lot of these pseudo specific exercise selections where we conclude that a lot of these attractor states are truly the ones that are going to lead to improved performance or risk or a lower risk of injury in those movements, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it seems like we are very adamant that we know what these attractor states are, where I would question whether they are and then how those are being targeted. Also, with that being said, not only how they're being targeted, but whether they're actually eliciting the response the desired response, whether we're actually seeing a change in movement kinematics after those interventions, right? If that's truly the case. So let's say we're working on the hip lock and sprinting and we're only using non-specific drills. So with me saying specific would be sprinting or very closely simulating sprinting. Of course, those have, that have seen Bosch methodology based exercise, they're oftentimes very general also within the weight room. Now, how is God that going to transfer to sprinting? I believe it is, in theory, something that we can definitely discuss. It is very interesting. But then from there, you would want that intervention to be not necessarily proven, but to see it elicit the desired results. That is oftentimes, in my opinion, not being sought after enough that practitioners aren't saying like, okay, I'm doing this exercise to target, attractor, state, whichever one it is. and then looking back and saying, did it get better? Also, if it got better, did it also lead to actual performance output improvements? Mm -hmm. Maybe someone runs better according to some technical model that does not inherently mean that they're reducing the risk of injury or that they're actually producing higher outputs Uh, because there is a lot of individual variants there within the technical model, obviously, generally speaking. So those are what I would consider, quote, unquote, issues with how it is being interpreted, with how it's being utilized in practice, but that's nothing against the actual thought process of placing more of an attention on coordinative movements or a coordinative overload, motor control, motor learning, if that makes sense. That's a good answer. That's a really good
0: answer. I actually don't think Bosch would disagree with a lot of what you said there. I think he certainly has never said that he's like the godfather of any of this or some or stuff. I think people who just haven't looked at anything, they just heard, first time they heard coordination, they heard that they, they, they saw Bosch. Yeah. And certainly for me, he brought my awareness more into that world, definitely, um, because he put so much attention and effort into it. And it was a big, it was a big thing for me to learn. And then I think, I think you would agree with John, the tractor states as well, that like, I think he's exploring that world, and certainly, as I think, he, as he as he goes into all different sports and stuff like that, he's trying to figure out what these attractors are um, as best he can. And I think, I think he would also try and look at film as much as he can to say, like, here was before, and here is the after. But like anything, measuring performance improvements, then is just <laughs> is, is almost impossible, really. Like you know, when it comes to a, an actual sport, unless the sport is sprinting itself or something like that um so i think yeah i don't i don't think he would disagree and certainly he would agree with the fact that people are taking out of context and not doing it the way it was intended and stuff like that i think but for me i think he's brought a lot of good stuff into the awareness of that world and understand that like we always hopefully the good coaches always understood that strength wasn't everything and this kind of maybe helps you understand why strength isn't everything you know it puts a puts a bit more theory and frames the conversation a little bit better. So um, so yeah. I think there is some coaches or yeah, I think I think I have seen some coaches that are working with maybe, maybe teams in the Dutch league that are, are using a lot of that work with their with the teams. I just I just wonder if can, we can just get at least to sprint and jump more and do their plyometrics and get better at, at those
1: activities. Will that just give me more benefits than the other drills, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, again, so I haven't spoken to Bosch personally. I don't know him personally. I, I would love to have certain conversation with him. I I believe he'll probably have a large, a, like a vast library of knowledge on on motor control and learning. Again, like I said, the industry has focused a lot on the traditional means of overload. And therefore I do see like, we're now kind of what I, th- think is happening is kind of like a pendulum swing towards the other side. So then it all becomes about coordination, motor control. And a lot of people are therefore totally forgetting about general tissue loading, general uh, stimulation for the uh, central nervous system, etc. Things that are super important towards or have been proven to be uh, super important towards for performance to kind of also place the attention on that. And eventually, probably the pendulum is going to go somewhere in the middle, right? Went from one way to the other, will end up somewhere in the middle. And I believe him being towards one side of the equation, or at least being promoted by a lot of people as being towards one side, I believe is going, is super valuable with regard to in-season training and improving certain sports skills. The fact is that a lot of these exercises that are being promoted, and again, it is hard to say it's, it's a generality, right? It's an umbrella statement. A lot of these movements that are being promoted from the Bosch methodology are relatively low load, relatively low load. They don't, of course, they're being applied to sprinting and jumping, et cetera. But a lot of gym-based exercises, at least, tend to be low load. Again, let's go back to the example of hip-blocking exercises. Mm -hmm. If in season, we are working our way between overloading and underloading, overloading and underloading, and we're trying to maintain long-term health And we want to develop some certain attractor states for sprinting, then I can see that there is benefit to utilizing maybe call it semi specific exercises that target some of these qualities where maybe the return on investment or the return is lower than if we were to just sprint, right? Lower specificity and sprint with constraints, et cetera. Maybe it is lower, but the risk is also far lower. So then I can imagine, I can kind of see this similarly to, if I want to train proprioception, I would much rather play sport and do plyometrics than do single leg stability stuff that is not dynamic by nature, yeah. if that makes sense, from a expecting results from the intervention perspective. Yeah. But if we're already playing, sp- playing sports and we're already overloading the stress that's being placed on the Achilles tendon, on the patellar tendon, et cetera. Maybe then saying, hey, if we want to supplement because we feel that someone's proprioceptive qualities aren't there and we want to supplement that, then we do those more lower level balance or stability drills that target those qualities with maybe less of a pay, like a, a return on investment, but no risk. Mm-hmm. Now, some of those drills that might target attractor states for sprinting, i.e. hip lock drills, they probably won't give me the same as targeted sprint work with constraints would. but they might offer me more than the alternative of doing nothing and it's not going to cost me anything. So I can see reasons for that. Similarly to why in season, yeah, some athletes might want to use certain recovery modalities where I'm like, yeah, I don't know how much it's going to help you, but it doesn't cost me anything. And the placebo might be worth it. So I can see reasons for the intervention. I can see reasons for the popularity within um, within pro sport, within in-season team sport settings. But even then I would advise anyone to use it to be critical of, because we're working with kinematics, do you understand what those desired kinematics truly are? Mm -hmm. So are those attractor states really what we think they are? Mm -hmm. Are they going to elicit the benefits that we think they are? Of course, trying to get as close to those answers as possible, never truly knowing the answer. And if so, Are my interventions leading to desire change? If at the end of a season, you have incorporated all of these different semi-specific exercises that target these kinematics, that target the attractor states, and there is no improvement within the technical model, there is no improvement in performance outputs, and long-term, there's no reduce in in, uh, injury risk or injury occurrence then we need to be critical and say, okay, maybe the semi-specific stuff doesn't work as much as we hoped it would. And to be critical of that, to evaluate that, I think is so important for them or for any practitioner yeah. that considers any intervention, but especially this, because it is so difficult to understand.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. I think it has probably more a place in the rehab process, even though of, I'm just trying to get people to and jump and lift heavy and stuff in the rehab process. I think that's more of a place when they're not doing the specific movement. Yeah. Maybe I can yeah. even just build confidence in their movements. Yeah. I do. I think I have a theory around the hip block stuff that I think maybe someone's hip block improves because we're doing, not because we're doing hip block drills, but probably because we stopped putting people into heavy, heavy, heavy back squats and heavy deadlifts all of the time. And so they're, they're, they're taken out of that little bit of like, or not a little bit, a lot of anterior tilt or a lot of extension that maybe comes along with that. And when you when you go into that position again, 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 and fatigue people, there they lose frontal plane control of their pelvis because they've pushed so far forward. So I think hip lock improves just by taking away back, back too much barbell back squats and too much um, uh, deadlifts. Now, what is too much? I don't know, but it's, uh, it's yeah, that's 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 my theory at least. So I, I see that. I, I test for that stuff, like, on the table. I can test, like, abduction and abduction, adduction, frontal plane movement of the, of the femur and the pelvis. And when someone is locked in extension, they don't have it. And when they take, get, get taken out of extension, they have it again, which is what Bosch is looking for in that frontal plane pelvis control. And he's just probably taken away a lot of back spots with people. So I wonder, is that just giving, it, giving them back that, um, that control over the pelvis? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But for the most part, at the moment, you
1: wouldn't think about using too much of that stuff. Um, It it really depends on the situation that you're working in. Um, I, I don't necessarily use a concept from the Bosch methodology, but I do base a lot on understanding kinematics, understanding motor control, understanding motor learning, and then also understanding the attractor states and the fluctuations of those. So I work a lot with those concepts, but not necessarily according to the information that Bosch might put out. Now, of course, the more specific or the more isolated a sport is, so i.e. you're a baseball pitcher or a baseball hitter, that kind of training, that kind of semi-specific or even specific training or training towards one sport skill becomes vastly more important rather than a team sport yeah. or a sport where an athlete has to execute a wide variety of tasks then it becomes very difficult to invest a lot of your time and energy towards one specific technical model of one of those movements and you're probably better off by saying okay we're going to develop generality we're going to try to cover our bases as much as possible and if someone is deficient at any of them then we may target specifically for that. So i.e. someone having poor pelvis control and sprinting and that is evident, maybe a history of hamstring issues. Um, we can obviously see poor posture standing or moving in general movements. Then it becomes more important to target those, maybe generally or maybe semi-specifically, slash specifically. And then yes, I would definitely target that, but I don't necessarily see it as quote unquote working with the Bosch methodology. Although a lot of the things that he has said and advocated, I believe, are well founded, or and that are super valuable to incorporate, which I then do.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I think I, I have the same thought process there. Sorry for asking you all about that, but it's just the country <laughs> that you live
1: in. Yeah, it's actually it's, it's funny. You get a actually this is the first time that I've publicly spoken about anything Bosch related. Mm-hmm. Um, reason being is because people either really love him and yeah. what he put out puts out. Or they really hate him now. I don't hilarious. know him. Per- yeah, it's. I mean, it, I, I get it, but I don't know him personally, so I haven't spoken to him and understand his thought processes to be able to say like, oh, well, he says this. Oh, well, he means this. The only thing I can say anything about is how I interpret what people put out and what people do when they promote the methodology itself. Yeah. Now, I must say, I am a core. I am a firm believer in principles over methodologies. I don't necessarily like methodologies because methodologies don't really transfer to various contexts. Principles stay the same saying, okay, whatever intervention I undertake, they must lead to improved sport performance. That is my core principle of anything I do. If I do something, it must lead to improved sport performance with the second one being then it has to be measurable or as measurable as possible. Now, will I always know that something leads to improved sport performance? No. Will it always be direct? No, it can be a secondary effect, tertiary, whatever comes after that. I don't even know. I'm not English speaking. Secondary to that. Am I always certain that something is measurable? Can I always quantify something? Not at all. But it is my intention with any of my interventions to say it is or to drive improvements in sport performance that are measurable. Then from there, other principles are to mitigate risk and to prioritize sport practice and playing games. Another might be to understand sport first, understand the athlete's ability and to direct a path from A to B, which again goes back to improving sport performance and then putting that together with Kier's perspective of reverse engineering sport or sport demands. So those things are principles that I've developed over the years of making mistakes, seeing what works, seeing what maybe doesn't work, subjective, objective, the whole thing. And that transfers now. Those principles I can say largely, I hope, will stay intact for the next 10, 20 years within my career because I've thought well enough about them to the point where they're going to be robust and they're going to help me make decisions in a variety of contexts. Methods might work very well in one context and might work horribly in another. But oftentimes, and again, a generality kind of statement, oftentimes people do marry these methods. And therefore, they don't understand that maybe that method doesn't apply as well in a different setting. And understanding whether a method carries value is a lot easier if you only use it because it fits a certain principle, if that makes sense. Makes sense. Definitely makes sense. Have you
0: Do you follow Stefan Jones on Instagram? Yeah. yeah. I think he's a good example of what you're saying, like a specific skill. He trains cricket fast bowlers and he's marrying the sports skill and strength and conditioning and he's doing tons of like semi-specific stuff, specific stuff. And I think he's, I don't doubt what he's doing because I think he's a really smart coach. And at the end of the day, it's measurable. It's like, can you throw that ball faster and, and more accurately? So that, I think he, he is probably the future of strength and conditioning in sports like that, that type of thing that he's doing.
1: Yeah. If, if I consider my, my past working with fighters uh, or weightlifters, which are more isolated-based sports, like the the, the movements uh, that they're going to be exposed to is less broad than in, for instance, soccer, basketball, or field hockey. So in the soccer, basketball, or field hockey, I might have more of a generalist approach where I focus on, again, making sure I take off all the boxes, I fill all the buckets, see what's empty, try to fill that up. But working in weightlifting or in combat sports, it is oftentimes, okay, how can I improve specifically one motion or in weightlifting, of course, one aspect of the motion. And then that kind of exercise intervention that maybe Stefan uses, of course, then for uh, combat sports or for weightlifting, becomes far more important within my training design than it would be in those team sports where there's a larger amount of movements that they might be exposed to.
0: Yeah, I love it. Yeah, man, that's great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Good job. I've been following you for a while now, and I think it's been nice to see your journey, and I think you're in a good place now. Obviously, the job that you're doing is not easy. It's good for the, no. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate how, how not easy that is. So, or I think I appreciate how not easy that is. So I think you're doing a great job.
1: Where can people find you? pretty much only on Instagram that's, that's where I'm at uh, almost like 24 hours a day no. <laughs> that's at Yuri Pagel that's Y O E R I P E G L. I tend to post uh, a bunch of stuff on there just random things that pop on into my mind and uh, try to share a little bit about my own process and hopefully that can that can help others
0: right. thank you very much Annie, Annie uh, oh
1: I should ask you my generic question
0: so you're going to be on a desert island for a week camping friends or family you can bring like three people that you'd like to learn from
1: who would that be? Cats and dogs, because F people. No. <laughs> um, who would that be? Dead or alive? Uh, yeah, whatever you want. How long am I there? A week. So it's not like a dinner. It's a week with this person. It's a week. Hmm. Well, first of all, that would be Kobe Bryant. I idolized him as a kid. It's, I was always the, the kid that, um, that always felt like the outsider. And it always felt like, you know, how, how weird that is, is that someone that is 15 years older than you and plays for the Los Angeles Lakers would understand you. That's how it feels as a 13, 14 year old. So definitely Kobe, who else would I have on there? Who else would I want to talk to? That's a good question. I did not think about this. You know, if it's If it's just one dinner versus it's a whole week of being able to have a slight insight into someone's brain so it'd be kobe yeah you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna change that question i'm gonna say we're gonna turn back the clock 20 years 20 20 years we're gonna be on that we're gonna be on that island i'm gonna bring kobe i'm gonna bring michael and Mm -hmm. i'm gonna bring a basketball for the third entry and then I'm going to make sure that they teach me basketball in a week to the point where I could have made the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> you think you could have it with the week with them? No way. There's it's, no way. How tall are you? Um, I'm six four, so that's, well, six three and a half. So that's yeah. you know, I was actually lying. Yeah, six three and a half, but a very short wingspan. And uh, the reason I actually started working or I actually went to the gym was when I was 16 is because I was so unathletic and bad at basketball. So. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have made it, but maybe I would have gone to college. You know, that's at least something free tuition would have gone for that. And a week of experience with Kobe and Michael would have been pretty good. Plus, if you could have a, a, a video for a phone to record that week with those two, you would now be a billionaire. I, literally. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Just get one of them, get the basketball, get the, get the, get the camera out. We'd be good. Yeah. Although cameras 20 years ago, I don't know about that battery life for, for a week straight. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not going to work well.
0: What? Polaroid, sell it as an NFC, and uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it'll still
1: be a billionaire. <laughs> yep, for sure. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Hey guys, David here. I hope you really enjoyed that chat with Yuri. Just a quick reminder, if you're interested in biomechanics, learning about movement, rehab, how I rehab different things, how I coach in the gym and outside the gym, how I assess everything in between, then don't forget to join up on DGR Interactive. We have almost 600 members there now. Maybe you could be lucky number 600. and So you'll get videos from me every week. You get obviously access to our full video library, which has just videos on anything, any question that you possibly could have about Internal rotation, external rotation, hip movement, foot movement, plantar fasciitis, Achilles, how to coach a squat, uh, how we coach hinges. Video I put up last week was a squat workout for a narrow ISA, a narrow infrasternal angle uh, client who's a runner. And why kinda of I'm using some of the some of the things I'm using, why like look at look at what's happening at his pelvis when I try and coach a hinge. This is why i'm going for squat work first and then trying to layer on the hinge work on top of that that's a 15 minute video you learn so much from that video alone uh this week i put up a video about breathing mechanics the question was what position would you put someone in a uh, wide in for a certain angle or a very, someone with a very wide rib cage what position who's who's very very stiff like they don't have a dynamic isa what position would you would you think about starting them in if you were doing some breathing work so i dived into that and we did like that was kind of understanding gravity, understanding the constraints of the floor, what the, how the floor constrains expansion in supine versus sideline versus whatever other position you might think of putting someone in. So that's another, I think it was about a 12 minute video there. So short, sharp videos just for you to learn a lot from. You watch one of them videos once a week. You know that topic, like you should, do you know the answer to when I have a wider infrasternal angle client who's very stiff like you can't they can't show you a dynamic rib cage it it can't really move what position should i start someone in and why do you know the answer to that if you don't maybe 12 minutes in 12 minutes time you could it might take you two minutes to sign up but um yeah for the people always say for less than like a price of a cup of coffee a day you can learn all this stuff actually i don't say that because it's way less than that so so yeah lots of good stuff there. And if you want to, you can sign up. So DGR Interactive, www.dgr or David Gray Rehab Interactive.com. That'll bring you there. And I hope I see you inside. Apart from that, I hope you had a good day. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I will chat to you guys soon.